Welcome to the Failsafe, a podcast about writing and failure. On this episode of the Failsafe, interviewer extraordinaire Mark Polanzak talks with Laura Vandenberg at a live recording we hosted last fall. A native of Florida, Laura is author of three books, most recently the novel Find Me, published in 2015 and named a Best Book of the Year by NPR, Time Out New York, and BuzzFeed. She is also the author of two collections of stories, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us and The Isle of Youth. Laura currently lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she is a Briggs Copeland lecturer in fiction at Harvard University. The Failsafe is produced by Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. Draft publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find them online at iowawritershouse.org. Coming up! What sports hero does Mark find it appropriate to quote in this interview? Why did a haunted writing residency make Laura delete an entire book? And what exactly is a post-apocalyptic noir novel anyway? All this and more coming up. Hey everyone, Rachel Yoder here. How's it going? We finally have another episode of The Failsafe for you. This one has been a long time coming. We actually recorded it last fall in Boston at a live event. Mark and Laura Vandenberg talked about failure. We've been holding out on you for nearly half a year. And finally, it's March. Here you go. Um, Oddly enough, I have an anecdote about Laura. I bet you're really surprised. Anyway, right after I moved to Iowa City, I was getting one story in the mail. One story is this cool little journal. It's a little book. It comes once a month, I think, and it features one story. And I think the first story I got when I I moved was Laura's title story from What the World Will Look Like After All the Water Leaves Us. And Laura is the only author who I've ever emailed after I read a story of theirs in a journal or magazine um, just because I loved it and I was so struck by it. It was a really sort of haunting story and a really big story, took place in a different country, I think over a long time period too. And it just, I'd I'd never read the story before and it seemed really, you know, it wasn't, I don't imagine it was close to Laura's life at all. It seemed very imaginative and um, I loved it. Yeah. So she inspired me to actually sit my curmudgeonly butt down and write her and tell her I thought, she was amazing. So I'm really excited that she's on the show this month. Um, What else do I need to tell you? Oh, I would like all of you to get excited about what's going to be happening at Mission Creek next month. So Mission Creek Festival, this is really cool festival that happens in Iowa City every year. There's music and literature and food and tech and community this year year there's going to be free community events anyway um the very first event of the festival this year is happening on tuesday april 4th at 4 p.m and i get to interview kelly link pulitzer prize nominee short story writing genre mixin Kelly Link at Prairie Lights Bookstore, April 4th, 4 p.m., kicking off Mission Creek Festival. Later that night, Andrew Bird's going to be playing. Kelly's going to read at this huge auditorium. And then there's just so much other goodness in store. Google Mission Creek Festival. Check it out. If you're near Iowa City, first week of April, would love to see you at the festival. Email me. We'll get a drink. It'll be fun. Um... Anyway, Kelly's coming up and she'll 
be on our podcast here in a couple months. So I'm, that's my only plug for this month. And really, truly, I would not plug something unless I thought you were going to have an amazing time. So just saying, Iowa City in April, so beautiful. Okay, so enough chit chat. I've got Mark and Laura for you in Boston. Enjoy. So let's welcome Laura Vandenberg. Thanks so much. So thank you for talking to the failsafe, Laura. Oh, thank you for having me. Failure is one of my favorite subjects. Why is that? Um, I, you know, I, th- I mean, I think, I think that when there's a failure that really, like, really hits you and really hurts, it's about the thing that didn't work out or the, the sort of immediate failure, but there's usually more sort of stuff wrapped up in it. Uh, and so I think for that reason, it's, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting that I think failure is sort of uniquely kind of complicated and fraught for different people for different reasons. So let's, so I'm, I'm totally ready to talk about the failure. Okay. Awesome. And I think that there's something to be said about failure because a lot of time, and I'm a, I'm a teacher and there's teachers in the crowd too, where we, we talk about, and we show students so much success, um, that they begin to think that this just happens instantly. Um, it, there's, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And to quote Michael Jordan, to quote Michael Jordan, like, I made it look too easy. Like, I put in a lot of work. Like, the, we, we start to obsess over the talent and the gift instead of all the work and struggles that went into it. But for you, Laura, we just talked about all of the stuff that you've accomplished um, in with two, like, beautiful, acclaimed collections of stories um, with a popular and critically acclaimed novel that's listed for awards, that gets all of this acclaim in magazines. Um, and now you're teaching at Harvard University, which by all accounts is like a pretty good school. Um, wh- what is failure now to you? Like, do you even worry about it? Like, it, as far as like your career and creative success, publishing stories, working on stories, working on writing and, and novels, is, is failure something that enters your mind as something that concerns you, or has all of this made the rest of what you do gravy? Yes. Failure. Yeah, <laughs> failure definitely, I mean, concerns me for sure. I, I think I also have a knack for imagining the worst case scenario in any situation. Like, even if something really good happens, I'm super just kind of blissfully excited for like a 15 second span and then I some I feel like sometimes there's like a rabid hamster in my brain that's kind of going on its little wheel and thinking of all the ways like something could go wrong etc um which is to say uh I yes I remain completely preoccupied with all the possibilities for failure that exist before me um but I think also too like the blank page is always the great equalizer. And I don't think it really matters if you, you know, have never published or you've published a couple books or you're, you're way later in your sort of artistic trajectory. I mean, every project has its own sort of terms and challenges and questions that in my experience at least are completely distinct from the projects that preceded it. And so in some ways, like what I learned, and I learned a lot writing my first book and there was a lot of failure tied up in that project. Um, but it's sort of of no use to me in the project that I'm working on. And I had about two months ago where there was this like one big question that I was trying to puzzle out. I woke up um, for like three weeks in a row at two o'clock in the morning, just sort of clammy with my heart pounding, um, you know, desperately afraid of failure and of failing with this, with this particular project. Um, So, so I, and I don't think that that will ever change for me. I, you know, I think that that's just, I mean, I think, and, and again, I think if you put a lot of writers up here, regardless of sort of where they are in their artistic life, I, I think, you know, they might have, have some sort of some, something similar to say. And just to go back to the teaching piece too, I do think that that's a really interesting thing about students because in the context of a workshop, we, we often don't talk about process a lot. Um, and they read these published pieces by authors that are that are wonderful, and um, but they don't, you know. I have a friend who said this incredibly wise thing, which is like every time you see a book on a shelf, there are a million invisible failures sitting behind it. And I think that that's probably true for even every story that you read that's been published in a magazine. But that's not a part of the process that often gets 
um, discussed with students in a workshop setting. And so they can have this idea that like someone just woke up one day and wrote this amazing story and then the next day it was published and now here we are reading it and discussing it um, when the trajectory you know, is almost always vastly more complicated and more fraught than that. And when you say when you say your current book, that um, is that what you're working on right now? Yes, what I'm working on right now. So, so your previous work is it a novel? It's a novel. Yeah, it is a novel. Yes. And your previous work on Find Me, you're saying is not informing how you're looking at the the present project? Uh, not really, because the projects are so different and the worlds are so different. You know, so just I mean, just on kind of a craft level. Um, you know, I, I, it took me a long time to figure out how to sustain like first person pre present tense, which is the the forum that Find Me's written in. Um, that's not the forum that this new project has, has taken. So it's like the particular questions that I had to figure out uh, with Find Me don't necessarily carry over, and that this project has invited me, or, or not invited, I would say demanded, um, that I think about a completely different set of questions. Um, I do think that there's something about knowing that. I had so many low points with Find Me, and I was able to swim to the other side of the pool, so to speak. So I, I do think that there's a little bit of, um, I wouldn't even say confidence exactly, but maybe just resilience that comes with that experience. Um, but it's but it's not as though it got easier after I'd already written one novel. Okay, so I, I knew you as a short story writer, um, and that's been going on for, for a long time now. And then you had Find Me come out. So you're, you're referencing Find Me, the first novel. Yeah. Um, was there a, a difference in scope about anxiety about success or failure with the novel? Uh, um, and I wanna, I wanna ask another question on top of that, if you, if you can handle it. Just what, Why did you write Find Me? It seemed like you were doing really well with your short stories. Um, it's great to have a novel. Everybody wants to read a novel, and I've read your novel, and it's amazing. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what what was the process of diving into that? Did you put away stories? Was there a different level of anxiety about like working on something for potentially years, as opposed to weeks or months? Yeah, definitely. I think time and and was the biggest source of, of anxiety for me, for sure. Um, to sort of circle back to the the question of why. I, you know, a lot of the the writers that I really latched onto initially, like Alice Munro, Deborah Eisenberg, um, Amy Hempel, you know, were people who made their home in the short story. And so I, and even though as you're saying, certainly, you know, there's this kind of common belief that there's a lot of pressure to write a novel and everyone wants to read a novel. And I, of course, had heard those things, but they weren't really pressures that I'd personally experienced. And I think because some of my early models, you know, were writers who had made their home in the form of the story, it seemed like a, a wonderful aspiration for me to do the same. So I didn't... Um, I didn't sort of wake up one day and I was like, all right, time to write, you know, I got to write the novel. Um, but I did have this idea that had been developing um, over a period of time about uh, a character and in a world. Um, and the, the book is divided into two parts. And one part is set entirely in a hospital in a near future America where um, an epidemic has destroyed people's memories. And the second part is set entirely uh, on, on sort of the open road. And that, I mean, the book, of, if you looked at my first draft versus the, the, the book that exists just right there. Could we? Um, no. Oh, my God. No, I don't save my drafts. I delete, I delete them all. I, would, I can't really think of anything more horrifying at the moment, actually, than looking at that, at that first draft. So much failure. Um, but I don't think that there's actually a sentence that you'd find in that first draft that carried over uh, into that book that lives over there. Um, but which is to say the project evolved a lot over time. Um, but that two-part structure was always there in my mind. And when I thought of that shape in the context of a short story, I couldn't see it. And when I thought of the speculative world in the context of a short story, I couldn't see it. And that was the first time that that had happened to me, where I was imagining a world that I couldn't, I couldn't see sort of it arcing in, in a way that a short story does. And so that was the first early signal that a larger canvas was perhaps needed. And, and in, in following that impulse, I ended up 
finding myself in the midst of writing a novel. Um, and I did take, I did take long breaks, uh, when I was in, in the, in the thickest, um, patches of failure there. I did, I took like year long breaks and, and actually only worked on stories and really wrote my second collection, the Isle of Youth sort of concurrently with Find Me. Um, and that book really grew out of, you know, needing to take a break from the long form and sort of going back to something that was a little bit more familiar. And, so I think the, but I think to go back to that question of time, you know, as a story writer, if you write a story, and I can usually write a draft of a story in say maybe a month or two, um, and if you get to the end and you realize this is just abysmal and I never want to look at this again and throw it away, it's not a great feeling, but it was also only, uh, you know, a month or two of my life, and I think it's a little bit easier psychologically to sort of just chalk it up to an experiment that didn't pan out. Um, but, you know, the novel asks, I think, something different from most people, at least in respect to time, where, you know, I worked on that book for six years. And even when I was not actively working on it, the world, the characters were very much alive in my mind. And, you know, you can spend, uh, you know, a year, two years, five years going down the wrong path with a novel, only to realize it and have to sort of slowly dig your way out. And I think the, the anxiety of sitting in the uncertainty certainty for so long was probably the hardest thing about about working on a novel and, and it's still hard I would say I, I would say that that's also not something that's really gotten easier it's inter it's interesting you say like the world continues to exist even if you're not working in it um, I think that that's true of people working on a long project but also in reading that book it is it's so sensory it seemed I mean, it, the, the first half of it takes place in a hospital and it is, there's literally people who are sterilized living in hazmat suits. Um, but what, one thing I noticed about it was how it touches on all five senses constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like there's, there's descriptions and like you're hearing stuff, you're smelling stuff, you're tasting stuff, you're seeing things constantly in this sort of sterile environment. So it seems like all of that time spent living in it, in your mind, like you recreated every little corner of that hospital that doesn't really exist, um, which is really interesting. But I'm, but I'm more curious about what were those huge failures you're talking about? You said, yeah. oh my God, so many failures, not a sentence exists. Did you, did you take it in a direction that we don't see in the book? Oh, yes. Yeah. I, 2011 was the year that I had every terrible idea and like merge them all into one project. Actually, lest you think I'm being hyperbolic, um, this was um, published as I wrote. I wrote a, I wrote a list, um, just sort of for my own amusement, and then and then showed it to people, and they were like, "This is made up. You did this. These all of these things were not." In, in this novel at one point, but but I'm sorry to say that they were. So uh, for a while, so the book did, I, I should also say like my process for writing a story is I write a really um, messy, bad first draft that would be incomprehensible to anyone but me. So, and it's really more like notes for a story than an actual story with a beginning and a middle and an end and a fully realized arc. And then my process is just all about reimagining what I put down and kind of excavating the real story. I think of it as sort of like an archeological dig and there's a lot of, you know, dusting away and you're sort of like, no, that's still a rock, still a rock. Um, still, still looking, <laughs> still looking for the, for the good stuff. Um, and so I wrote the first draft of Find Me in the exact same manner, thinking, well, this is just how I write, this is just how I write, period. And, you know, I didn't really understand or fully appreciate that to have, you know, a 200-page disaster on your hands is very different than having a 20-page disaster on your hands. And so, um, you know, necessarily, because that first draft is really kind of notes for a novel as opposed to, you know, fully realized uh, world, uh, it needed to evolve in a lot of different directions. And, and typically I'll go sort of way off course and then kind of come back and then go way off course. I mean, that's, that's just, again, it's a very inefficient process. If there was a, a more efficient way I would do it. That's a conversation I have with students all the time where they're like, well, isn't there a way to just sort of streamline this whole thing? And it's like, not, no, not really. Um, and, I, and I think that the failure is, you know, I don't know how to write a book without failure, and I, I don't think anything that I've written would exist without without failure. Um, and so, I mean, I think in some ways failure is very instructive and necessary and, and helpful and not just a thing to feel kind of aggrieved by, for sure. 
But yeah, there was a stretch like 2010, 2011, where I got obsessed with this idea of writing a post-apocalyptic noir. Um, and so there was like an accordion with diamonds sewed on the inside and a detectives and there was like a murder. I love it. Um, and I, I still think I would love to read a, a post-apocalyptic noir, um, but I, I, I was not uh, equipped to write one, it turns out. And I think part of what was going on is that I really didn't understand the arc of Joy's character. And so in, to compensate for that, I was just like, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Maybe if I make enough stuff happen, then this like really critical piece won't somehow matter as much, which of course never works, right? Um, and so I, I, that there was like a very difficult stretch where I had to, I was in a residency in Key West. I remember this very clearly. It was, a, this is a, there's possibly a really long story that could be folded into this, but I'll just give the short version. I was at a residency in Key West. It was like over a hundred degrees every day because it's Florida in, July in the Keys. She's complaining. Um, and the residency was also haunted, and which translated into me not sleeping for about a two-week stretch, uh, and, and as a way of, of coping with this. Otherwise, it was lovely. Um, not to, it was not all it was not all terrible, but uh, but there were some you know environmental pressures at work, and sort of to like cope with this situation, uh, I would wake up really early in the morning and walk down to the ocean and jump off this dock and swim. And, um, and I had been wrangling, I came to the residency knowing that I really needed to do some serious revision work on Find Me, and I had been wrangling with this draft for a long time. And, um, and, but I was still just sort of trying to like kind of finesse what I already had instead of really you know, burning it to the ground and, and reimagining and rebuilding. And then one morning um, where I was just sort of feeling kind of wrecked from both the heat and the not sleeping, I jumped off the dock and came up uh, out of the water and just knew with this sort of like gut punch of certainty that I had to delete everything that I had and start over. And I, by then I'd been working on the novel for about four or so years. So I had, my investment was considerable, but the certainty was like so overwhelming that there was just like no choice. And so I went back to my haunted studio and deleted, um, and deleted everything, like, as much as you can. You know, I had flash drive, but I threw away my flash drives. I deleted, you know, emptied the trash, et cetera, and started over and wrote, like, 100 pages of a new draft um, while I was still at the residency. And so I think that that was, you know, maybe one of the most intense moments where I felt like I had failed, but also the failure sort of compelled me in a new direction. That, that's shocking. That's a lot to delete after so. Yeah. And, uh, yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> and like, you're not even talking about like reworking. Yeah. You're talking about throwing. Throwing it throwing away. It out. Yeah. And that's actually, I will say one thing that, um, one thing that find me did teach me is that I was so terrified about time and the anxiety around time and the time that a novel takes is that I held on to stuff for way too long and now I think like my sort of vow to myself the next time I was working on a novel is that as soon as I got the inkling that I had failed in some aspect of the project to be like, yes, like you failed, like fuck it, like delete it and, and move on to sort of the next thing instead of trying to kind of hold, you know, hold on to it and like finesse um, what really just needs to be burned. Well, that makes me wonder why, okay, you're, you're underwater in Key West you come out and you think, delete it. But uh, what makes you what makes you actually, after deleting it, go and work on the same book? I mean, it was essentially like you're working with the same theme, same character, same setting. Why not? Why not pop out of that water in Key West with the orca <laughs> and just say, or the manatee, and just say, shark, <laughs> shark, what new project entirely? Yeah, well, I think the character wouldn't let me go and the world wouldn't let me go. And I mean, I totally, and I've started many novels that I've scrapped. I'm in Gemini, I have a very low boredom threshold. So if something like loses my interest, then I then that just, 
when people are like, how do you decide what to finish and what not to? I mean, for me, that's a very easy decision because I either am interested or I'm not. And if I'm not interested, I sort of like literally can't compel myself to keep working on it. Um, this was a, a, a problem for me when I had like terrible day jobs. Uh, but, um, but it, you know, it's that world wouldn't let me go. The voice wouldn't let me go. The character wouldn't let me go. So, I, so I, it, it didn't feel like an option to just abandon it entirely and think, okay, I'm just going to try and start an entirely um, different sort of story and world. Are you in love with Joy? Um, I'm very fond of Joy. Okay. Right. Yeah. Are you are you are you fond of her uh, hospital roommate? Um. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Um. Laura. But Joy is, you know, I think Joy is like, she's like a, I still sometimes feels like a, like sort of a ghost, you know, ghost character that's kind of trailing me again with the ghost, this ghost character that's sort of trailing me around. One, one thing that I, I mean, I love this. I, I will see all of the Boston gangster movies as long as they keep on coming out and doing the same exact thing again. As long as they show like Fenway Park, I'll be like, there's Fenway Park. And I'll keep on going. Um, but in your book, I, I had the experience of like, you actually walk around Somerville, Cambridge, and Boston yeah. in the book. It was, it was really cool. I mean, um, it, was, it was nice to see that. And I remember you saying like the in, in the book, like the city was training you, like the way that you had to move around the city was yeah, training you. Like the tea moving underground in the tunnels. Yeah, yeah. Tra- training you, training the character Joy for this life after this bizarre apocalypse of memory and, and disease and, and confinement. Um, so I actually, this isn't a question. I'm just saying I, I dug yeah, reading that. Thank you. Um, but now, Laura... Do you care about commercial success? And define commercial success. No. <laughs> do you do you care? All right, it's so hard to pinpoint the the moment at which you let go of a book or a story as a writer and then give it up to like there's like critical success, there's popular success. And I guess like you could have a short story published in, it's so hard to track this. Like you have a short story published in a magazine. You've had short stories published in a lot of literary journals. How do you, first of all, like how do you track any sort of success with a story published in a magazine apart from like the magazine nominating it for an award? What about those stories where like they never nominated for an award and it's just there in American short fiction or wherever it is? Do you, do you are you able to gauge success or failure once it leaves your desk and enters that magazine? Yeah, I mean, I would say really not at all with short stories. I mean, you know, certainly if a, if a story like is published in say American short fiction and then is reprinted in like Best American or Henry or something like that's that, success. Laura. Then that's yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a recognition that was it's not something that happens every day, right? So right. it's a recognition that feels. Um, like exceptional, like, oh, this is a really special thing because this does not normally happen when I publish a story. Um, so, I mean, I think that there, there's an aware awareness of that sort of specialness. Um, but otherwise, you know, you're just sort of glad that it's out in the world. And I, I, I don't think that there's, and I'm not even sure what success would look like ex- exactly, you know? Um, so I do think that's harder to, to chart or, or to yeah, to assess in any kind of concrete way. I mean, I think with a, when you, if you publish a book, um, you know, their, their reviews or the possibility of reviews, you know, you have questions of, of sales and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I think the, that the spectrum of success or even like what is commercial, for, like for some writers, commercial success would be like, you know, I sold enough copies that my publisher isn't mad at me and they'll buy my next book, which I think is sort of more or less where I am. Um, for other people, commercial success would be like it being a New York Times bestseller, you know? So I think that that, um, that's, that spectrum of, of is so broad in terms of like it can mean something really different from one writer versus, a, versus another writer. Let me be very specific. Did you check your Amazon sales rank? Oh yeah, of course. Were you happy or sad? I did on the, but I also like, don't, like if it was like number one, I'd be like, oh, I know that's good. But I think it's like, I'm so sort of, it, it's also so, sort of mysterious for me. Like I don't really, I, I think I did. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what this means. Like, is this good? Is this not good? I think it would have to, it ha- I would, if, you know, I would know it was bad if it was like, 
you know, 500,000, it would be really good if it was number three, and then everything else in the middle is sort of kind of confusing to me. So, um, but I do read, you know, I really, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by writers who, who don't or, or claim they don't read reviews because that just the, seems to involve like a phenomenal amount of self-restraint, I guess. Um, but I, I do read reviews though. I mean, I mean, like I'm genuinely interested in what people have to say uh, about my work. I also feel like even if it's not um, a great review, I feel lucky to be reviewed because it's, it's hard for books to be reviewed. Um, and, and, I, and I'm interested in sort of what someone's, you know, take or, or angle is going to be on something. Um, so, so I do read reviews and I, you know, I am aware of that landscape such as it, such as, such as it is. Such as it is. Okay. Um, thank you for that. And, and I was digging there for a second, but uh, you went you went to school here at Emerson. Um, did you come up? Did you come up from Florida for that? I did. Yeah, okay. I did. Um, My did, first winter. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, well, they don't have winter. In, I mean, not like they have winter here. No. Sometimes it gets in the 30s, and everyone freaks out. Um, in, in Orlando where I grew up. That, so that was my idea of winter, that like it could be 38 degrees and everyone would be like, oh my God, we might not make it. In the, uh, and are you okay with the winter up here? Yeah, I, I actually really like the seasons. Um, I think that there's, there's a kind of rhythm to it that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but I, I do, you know, it, but on the other hand, it is nice to like visit my family in Florida in, you know, in Ooh. December, January, where it's, you know, 70 degrees and cloudless blue skies. So... Okay, great. Well, yeah, but I, I, we're I am, all going with you. I've made peace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> please. Um, so over here in your first winter, over here at Emerson, um, you're at the MFA program. Does uh, I want to transition a little bit to just talking about like the MFA program? Mm -hmm. Did that actually did the MFA program help you prepare for creative struggles? Um, did it help you prepare for critical? Um, Criticism. Um, what did what did the MFA program at Emerson uh, do for you in your creative habits and struggles? Like specifically, did it prepare you for what came next when things didn't go well? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I mean I would say yes and no. Uh, I, I think in some ways, like the like life of writers or or any sort of artistic path is not really a thing you can, you maybe can be prepared for in the full sense. Um, but my MFA program did a lot for me. I had a couple of really good mentors at Emerson um, who really helped me. Um, I mean, who were, were not only very helpful critics, but they helped me understand what I wanted to do in my stories. I was only working on stories during my MFA. They helped me understand what I wanted to do uh, in my stories um, in, in, with, with more sort of precision and clarity. And I think that that was one of the most valuable things that I got out of the program. I also... Um, you know, I grew up in Central Florida, and Central Florida is actually quite artistically vibrant now, um, not so much when I was a child. Um, there weren't artists in my family, and so the notion of being a, a writer was, was, you know, it was somewhat foreign. And I, I think just to be in a, in, a, in a literary community, to have... Um, you know, peers who then became friends, some, you know, some of them have been, you know, lifelong friends that are, are, you know, reaching in the same directions and aspiring in similar directions and are sort of trying to make, you know, kind of a home in, in fiction. Um, I mean, that was really important for me in a way that I didn't quite appreciate until, you know, I was out of, until I was out of the program. Um, so I think the sense of community was really valuable. And I also came, um, I, I have sort of a wonky, um, background in respect to my own education uh, in that I didn't finish high school. I got a GED. I went to, I went to night school. I guess that's not wonky. It's just not maybe the traditional, the traditional path. And I started, I, I kind of stumbled into a creative writing workshop when I was in night school because I was doing so poorly in school. I was not a very good student is the narrative that's, that's emerging here. Um, I was doing so poorly in school that I was like, I, I need like a really easy A. And I was like, I remember the course catalog was still hard copy. And I was like, oh, fiction workshop. What, what could be easier than making up a bunch of stories? Um, and, and it turned L out really, yeah, really, that, that really, okay. yeah, that's, I'm not being the least bit sarcastic or, <laughs> or anything. Um, and, and it turned out to be so much more than that, in fact. 
Um, so, so I also was like, I wasn't very well, you know, I, I had just missed a lot of steps in respect to my own literary education. I knew nothing about publishing. I had never really been in conversation with other writers. So I think it was also just, just in terms of like basic education was really, um, important for me too, more so than maybe it might've been from someone who came from kind of a rounder background in respect to, to education. Okay. On the, on the other side of the, the desk. Is there, you're, you're teaching creative writing now? You've taught it I elsewhere? I am, yes. Yeah. Um, and none of your students are here right now? I, I don't, it's quite dark, but I, I don't, uh, no, I don't Is think there, so. Yes, I don't, no. They're not here. Okay, good. Um, is there ever a time for a student to hear that they shouldn't continue doing this? Um... You know, I, that's an interesting question, and it comes, like, I think the thing that it always makes me think of, or, or I guess my question back to that would be, like, what is the role of the teacher in the workshop? Um, like, I, I had a semester in my MFA where I was just writing really badly, and I knew I was writing really badly, but I had to turn stories in for a workshop, and they were just, they were, it was painful. Like, it was painful for me to sit through the workshop discussions, because I knew the stories were really bad, but it was just like one of those semesters where I just didn't, I just didn't have anything. And I think, you know, my professor, it, my t teacher that semester, who was always like, what these, why are these stories so terrible? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, would, it would not have been completely out of left field if she had sat me down and been like, yeah, I don't think this thing, like maybe this is not for you. Um, but she didn't, and and if she did, she, you know, it would have been, um, you know, I mean, she would have been making that assessment sort of after knowing me for a writer as a writer for a couple of months. Uh, and so, I think like to me, the role of a teacher is not to do this sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, where I'm like, you're a writer, you're not a writer, you're a writer, you're not a writer. Um, it's not, you know, I don't, I'm not of the sort of teacher as, as deity. Um, I think, and I think after knowing a student for a semester, I'm, I'm really like not actually equipped, nor is it frankly my place to say, you're a writer, you're not a writer. Um, and I think, I feel like very much with undergraduates, uh, I mean, so few undergraduates like actually aspire to be, you know, working writers. Um, I think the terms, of course, are different when you're, when you're working with MFA students. Um, but I mean, my mission teaching undergraduates is that you, after this workshop, you will write a better sentence, maybe not a brilliant sentence, but you will better sentence, you will learn to think and talk about and read literature in slightly different ways and you'll read, um, you know, you'll read things that you might not encounter elsewhere. You will leave my class knowing who Helen Oyemi is, knowing who Jim Shepard is if you didn't previously. And I feel really good about that as, as a kind of pedagogical mission. Um, what I do feel, so, and so thinking about like an MFA student, for example, um, what I do feel really comfortable saying is that this project isn't working. Um, this novel, like you really need to reimagine the way that you're coming at this. This story, you really need to imagine the way you're coming at this. I mean, that I think is, is absolutely fair game to say like this project isn't working. Um, you need to maybe kind of think about tabling this or, or, or really reassessing your approach. Um, but I don't think... It's, it's ever for me to say you, you sort of have it and you don't. And are, are, is that stuff that you learned how to teach because of your failure or because of your success? How, how, do, you, how do you mean? Uh, like, what do I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I think like it sounds like you were the way that you were going to imagine this hypothetical student and saying like this project's not working. Um, I'm not going to tell you that you can't do this, but I'm going to tell you you got to reimagine this. You got to get back at it. Is there a time where you're, like you're conjuring the places where you've been successful, or are you like are you pulling from your own experiences as like I remember being at this place where oh, I was yeah. not doing it well? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think sometimes I can see sort of my own my own failures, you know, being mirrored back to me in student work for sure. That's yeah, why I'm such a good absolutely. teacher because I have so many failures. Yeah, because I have so much failure. I was like, oh no, I've been down that path. Don't go down that path. Um, but, you know, often, I mean, going back to the idea of failure is necessity. I mean, it often, though, it's unavoidable to go down that path and you have to go down that path of failure to learn what you need to learn and then kind of carry, you know, to to find your way back to the to the better the better path
Don't you think? Yeah. That's really good advice. It's it's easier it's it's an easier thing to say when you're not when you're not in it, I think. Um but uh, but yeah, that's I mean, so certainly, and also knowing like what I figured out or like how I, you know, finally got like a story to work that didn't work for a really long time. So I mean, I think it's it's sort of, you know, it's born of both failure and then sort of climbing out of failure that you know kind of uh, informs uh, my eye when I'm when I'm reading student work. I have, I have so many more questions for you, and I know that I'm going to carry it away, and we're going to be here all night, all throughout Halloween, but I have to ask, just like to close this out, um, you've said a lot of great things. I feel like I've learned, like I've been through a lot tonight talking to you, and I wonder if there's anybody listening out there, maybe it's not even this year, maybe these podcasts live forever, it's the year 2085, um, you're alive, I'm dead, but there's someone listening and they feel like they're failing at whatever they're writing. Um, they're listening to you, and they're just like trying to get some sort of help. What do you say to that person just over there in their studio apartment writing stories and then just all of a sudden encountering one and being like, I'm not a writer? Yeah. Um, do you really think well, the world will still be here in 2085? No, not at all. <laughs> I hope so. I don't, yeah, well, that's It's not going to be here after four years. That's, um, that's a, that's a different podcast, perhaps. <laughs> a question, a question for a different podcast. Um, yeah, I think, hmm, I think that, um, the, for me, the best things that I've gotten out of failure is that the, the moments where you're able to sort of recognize failure or the potential for failure, it, I think it's kind of cornered me, often somewhat reluctantly, into a place of, um, of like real self-honesty that I would not ever have been able or frankly wouldn't have wanted to access had I not been pushed there by the failure. Um, so I think like, for example, the, like the, the most intense moments of failure of working on Find Me or working on the novel project that I'm working on now, I mean, it really made me sort of examine why am I writing this book? Why am I so attached to this particular um, choice that I've made with this project? Is it because I'm scared to make a different choice? Is it because I, I'm scared of doing the work of undoing this choice and making a different choice? Like, why am I doing this, period? What's, what's driving me forward? Um, and I think that, like, our culture is not great at... Um, how to say this, not great at sort of juggling, holding complexities perhaps um, is one way of saying it. And so I think when we're talking about kind of failure and defeat and success, there's a lot of like, never give up. You know, you can do it, stay in it and it will happen eventually. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think it's all, it's all sort of more complicated than that. And so I think my advice would be to, to know that Sitting, sitting in failure and really acknowledging it is not um, a symptom of sort of a global failure um, or permanent failure, but it's temporary and it, it and it's it's a it's a step on a, a longer path. Um, but to also like try and be really attentive to the lessons that are being offered by that failure and the self exam the possibilities for self examination and self honesty that are being offered by that failure and pay attention to what you see there because I think you know when we're really lost in the woods and we're like how am I ever going to find a roadmap out of this terrible place um, you know the, the the answers are with like when we like really look deep within and think why am I doing this why am I writing this book why have I made these choices um, sometimes like the answers that we come up with like that is the actual roadmap but we have to be um sort of tough enough and brave enough and willing, you know, willing to really sit in that failure and, and embrace it and look at it and see what looks back at us. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Laura Vandenberg, ladies and gentlemen. Failure.
So after the interview ended, Laura and Mark took to the audience to talk to some of our audience members. They talked to Maricela and they talked to, to Allie. Listen for yourself. Here they are. Hi there. I'm getting sent around with the microphone. Would you like to tell us your name and your thoughts on failure? Sure. Um, my name is Marcella Navarro. Um, and I have a story that I started, a short story that I started, I think about six years ago, that started with an interesting comment that someone posted on Facebook about a guy sitting uh, in a cemetery having a beer. And I got obsessed with that idea and started writing that story for about six years and have several horrible drafts of that story that um, basically now is completely completely unrecognizable. So I'm very familiar with um, kind of being too married to an idea to kind of be able to let go, um, kind of let go of it and see that it might actually work better as something else. So I actually, um, what started out as some, as a story where it was completely set in a cemetery with a guy sitting there drinking a beer, um, I don't think that actually exists in the story today. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I guess I just maybe... Um, my my experience is um, it's okay it's okay to let go of your uh, your initial idea um, and go with something else. <laughs> Thank you. You've read a lot. I would say so. Yeah. Enjoy reading. Okay. Everybody's a reader here. Um, did you like? At what point did you realize that? Or have you realized at all that writers don't speak into the printing press? Or do you still think that like there are writers out there who like your favorite writers who dead or alive just like sat down, had a concept of a novel, put it down on paper, like you know, from their brain to the page? Or or do you actually think of them as like human beings crafting this shit? Uh, Dear Foster Wallace. I feel like up until I read an interview with Dear Foster Wallace, I kind of had bought into that romanticist notion, because it's a romanticist notion, right? Of, of Wordsworth and Shelley sort of being like, I'm inspired, and it just like came to me. Um, and I feel like he wrote, he was like, I, I do so many drafts, I just read and read and write, and I feel like it's garbage, and then I keep going. And I was like, wow, if someone like that can produce something that when I see the end product, I think of it as a work of genius, that means that that genius is, in fact, in the craft. In the craft. And as well, in, the, in, the, in, work. in work. And that there's probably some argument to be made about why, as a culture, we, we held up that idea of an individual, individual talent or genius and like what, who benefited from that and where that came from. But I think it's on the, I think it's on the way out. I have a question for both of you, maybe. So, okay, in tonight, I really liked when Laura talked about deleting the entire draft yeah. because that was, like, had me thinking about failure, and we were talking about failure in a different sense right before we started this, yeah. Um, and that had me thinking, okay, even when there is literally no evidence that this has mattered in what you're doing moving forward, it still does because you have a brain and a story and a narrative of your own, and that lives, like, things live on. That was really cool to think about. My question for you is, are there failures that are bad, that are not worth it, that leave you thinking, man, I wish I didn't actually do that. That is, like, the worst thing I could have done. And if so, like, how do you know when that's the case? Or are we just, like, making story that, like, failure is positive because we're born to kind of survive and move forward through things? I'm going to say something that is not an answer to that, and then you have to give an answer to that, which is that... I was also really struck by that moment when Laura said that, and it reminded me of Edward P. Jones, who wrote The Known World, which is an amazing book. Um, he spent years thinking he was going to write historical fiction, and he did all the research for it, and he like and he, and he got and he went into the archives, he did all the stuff, years, and then he scrapped it, and then just wrote a like postmodern novel, like got rid of, kept it as kind of a pseudo historical thing, but like got rid of it. That's all I have. Yeah, failures that are not helpful. But I do think that there are failures that get 
fully abandoned, which is never than what Laura was talking about, where she deleted an entire draft, but like her character, her setting, some some soul of that book she still wrote. And I've written so many things where I've deleted them and been like, thank goodness, I will never think about that subject ever again because that was dumb. Um, and a lot of them come in the middle of the night after I've had a few drinks. Okay, maybe my question was darker than maybe you interpreted it to be because my, I'm thinking now, like, would you ever interview someone who gave up writing after a failure or like someone who has not recovered where it's not um, about abandoning a project but truly a failure that has like negatively impacted a human. Yeah, like, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I guess I'm just curious about it because, so I, I was at a training recently and they were talking about how uh, it was about therapy and how um, we should all videotape every time we have a session because our brains are designed to lie to us. They're desi- designed to deceive us about what we're doing and to like give us a story that is hopeful. That's sort of like how we survive as humans, right? And so videotape can help keep us honest a little bit. And so this is not me questioning the idea of failure as positive. I think it's incredible and I think it's important. I think it does really... Um, serve us to explore. I'm just curious about like, are we are we sort of like looking at this in a slant way by like it's just bad. Yeah, it's just bad, you know? And so that is where we're going to leave this one, folks. Our brains are designed to lie to us and give us a story that's hopeful. Ms. Ali Santiago, thank you for that. When did you fail and it broke you and you wish it never would have happened. Just something to think about as you go about your day. Hey, that's it for episode seven of the fail safe. If you like this episode, please head on over to iTunes and give us a positive review and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or even better consider donating to support the fail safe. Just visit our website, thefailsafepodcast.com, scroll down and click on the donate button. Any size gift helps us enormously. We'll use your donations for our tech needs, our live events, and other production and marketing costs. And really, truly, thanks for listening to The Failsafe, a joint production of Draft, The Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House.